You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that, we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. One would have never called it the crime of the century, but the drowning of 14-year-old Maxwell Breeze on July 4, 1936 was a story that was followed closely by nearly every newspaper in the United States. The scene of the crime was the Erie Canal in Brockport, New York, which lies approximately 20 miles or 30 kilometers northwest of the city of Rochester. That afternoon, while Max was swimming with his friends in the Erie Canal, the accused murderer supposedly leaped from the shoreline and swam a short distance before jumping on the back of the victim. As he grabbed hold, the boy struggled for air. Max fought to get the weight of the attacker's body off, but he failed. His lungs filled with water, and Maxwell Breeze's life ended. Witnesses immediately identified the perpetrator, so an arrest was made and a trial ordered. The penalty, if found guilty, was death. But this case was very different from most murder trials that you're familiar with. This one was extremely different. That is because the accused was not human. He was a nine-month-old shaggy, part Airedale, part German Shepherd dog, a dog named Idaho. He was named Idaho by his owner, 22-year-old Victor Fortune. Idaho was one of a litter of seven puppies that he cared for while he was working at the CCC camp, that's a Civilian Conservation Corps camp, in Salmon, Idaho, nearly six months earlier. All of the other puppies were given new homes, while Fortune opted to bring Idaho back east when he returned home to Brockport. Now, the decision as to whether Idaho was a vicious dog bent on attack or simply a fun-loving mutt that was placed in the hands of Justice of the Peace, Homer B. Benedict. During preliminary testimony on July 21st, friends of Max Breeze each identified Idaho as the dog who jumped on his back and killed him. Donald Duff was one of the three boys swimming with Max at the time, and Justice Benedict directed the following questions to him. He began by asking the lad, quote, What did the dog do to Max? To which Donald replied, just try to climb on Max's back. Next he asked, 
Was Max playing with the dog before he went in the water? The answer was a simple no. What did Max do? He got frightened and swam out toward the middle and hollered, The dog's after me! Help! Just as Benedict continued his questioning. What happened then? Paul Hamlin swam out to help, but the dog tried to climb on him, and when he tried to shake him off, Max went down and Paul couldn't get him. Testimony was also given by 21-year-old Daniel Houghton. He claimed that the dog had attacked him on two different occasions as he swam in the canal. The opposition included Victor Fortune, of course, he's uh, Idaho's owner, and he insisted that Idaho was simply playing around and wouldn't cause any harm to anyone. Next up was Mary Faubister. At that time, she was the secretary of the Rochester Dog Protective Association, and she was called to the stand because she had been caring for Idaho at the Scottsville shelter since the incident occurred. She said that New York State law required that an animal be observed by a veterinarian for a two-week period before it was adjudged to be vicious. To this, Justice Benedict agreed, and he issued a two-week postponement until the case would continue. By this point, word of placing a dog on trial for murder had spread far and wide through the nation's media. One reader, a guy named Carl Hoisington in Moscow, Idaho, took one look at the photo of the accused dog in his local paper, and he was convinced that Idaho was identical to the dog that was reported stolen from his brother-in-law Cecil Tully in Idaho Falls. So Moscow Police Chief Giles Hoy sent the following telegram to authorities in Brockport. Dog accused drowning boy answers description of animals stolen from Idaho Falls, Idaho. Stop. Hold dog until airmail letter description arrives. Stop. But Victor Fortune stuck to his story that he had obtained Idaho as a pup, and since there's no further mention of it in the press, and probably most obviously since the dog that was stolen was reported to be 8 years old and Idaho is only 9 months old, we can assume that this claim was unfounded. As you'd expect, letters, telegrams, and cash donations started to pour in from all corners of the country, and most of it was in support of the pooch. The money was used to set up a defense fund, which basically meant obtaining a good lawyer, they hired Harry A. Sessions, and for payment of the court's stenography fees. The famed Hollywood movie dog Kentucky Boy sent a dollar along with a letter that read, My name is Kentucky Boy. I am just an Airedale dog, yet the governor of California, the mayor of Los Angeles, and many noted persons have conferred honors on me because I am credited with saving many lives and preventing the destruction by fire of a studio in Hollywood. I am now pleading for the life of Idaho, and the dollar encloses my contribution for his defense. Sincerely yours, Kentucky Boy III, 3814 Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood, California. The letter, of course, was signed with the obligatory paw print. Renowned dog authority Albert Payson Terhune was unable to get to Brockport to examine Idaho, but he offered the following opinion, quote, It is evident to any expert that a nine-month-old puppy is not intentionally homicidal and that he was at play when he climbed on the boy's shoulders. He continued, Instead of putting Idaho to death, it would be more sane to keep him away from the canal in the future. Meanwhile, back at the prison for delinquent dogs, a watchman, 
one who had been the bodyguard for President Taft, was assigned to keep an eye on Idaho. Now, it wasn't that they feared that Idaho would try to break out and make a run for it. Instead, there was the possibility that someone would actually try to break in and steal the now-famous dog. Over the two-week period, Idaho was subjected to a variety of tests that determined how vicious he really was. Overall, he was found to simply be a nice and friendly puppy. Martin J. Gagey, a reporter for the Herald Times, was able to jump in the canal with Idaho while they were under the supervision of Dr. William H. Mahoney. He was the veterinarian for the Dog Protective Association. Quote, Idaho enjoys the water immensely. I am convinced he meant no harm when he played tag with me in the murky waters of the canal. However, he weighs 50 pounds, that's 23 kilograms, and even in play is rough. I got several scratches, but there was no hint of viciousness as he pawed me. He was just a big, rough puppy enjoying a swim to the utmost. A survey by the Brockport Republic Democrat found that 120 readers favored putting Idaho down, while 104 readers preferred that he be set free. A point-counterpoint story was syndicated by the United Press in early August. Max Breeze's mom, Anne, wrote, quote, My boy Maxie is dead! the victim of a dangerous mongrel dog. I believe that dog was Idaho and I demand that he be killed. She continued, if the people of this country who are not parents continue, as they have in this case, to place the life of a mongrel dog above the life of a happy, healthy child, then it is time that all mothers give up the task of bringing up children. In response, Mary Faubisser offered up the following quote, I am not putting the life of a dog above that of a child when I ask that Idaho be allowed to live. She added, But for two weeks I have virtually lived with Idaho. I have observed his behavior in every conceivable situation, in water and on land. From my experience of 15 years with dogs of all breeds, I am convinced that Idaho is not vicious, not dangerous. His chart shown to be perfectly healthy and normal in every way. On August 5th, as scheduled, all involved parties gathered in Brockport's Village Hall. Now, I should point out that technically this was not really a trial. Instead, it was a hearing in regards to a civil suit that required that Idaho's owner prove why the dog shouldn't be put to sleep. The place was jammed to the rafters with an estimated 300 spectators as the press snapped picture after picture. But Idaho seemed little interested in what was going on as witness after witness testified on his behalf. He barked when Victor Fortune took the stand, but he quickly settled in to take a nap. The only other time that he showed any excitement was when three-year-old Rex was brought in as a, quote, alibi dog to throw some doubt as to whether or not Idaho was really at the canal at the time of the drowning. Of course, no court decision could ever please all involved, but Justice Benedict's order was probably the best compromise possible. He spared Idaho's life, and instead he sentenced him to 26 months of house arrest. Quote, After considering all the evidence regarding the dog Idaho's actions in the water, which, in my opinion, are dangerous, I have decided to order the dog returned to his owner, Victor Fortune, to keep him in confinement until October 1, 1938. He added, quote, if said dog is not so confined, it must be killed by any legally constituted peace officer. 
The crowd jumped to their feet and cheered joyfully at the decision. But as one would expect, the parents of Maxwell Breeze were infuriated. Mrs. Breeze said, quote, They're going to let that dog around loose and it'll kill someone else. That dog killed my poor son, the only thing that I had. She continued, If I had a gun, I'd shoot it myself. Idaho was then escorted out of the pseudo-courtroom, and he was taken by Ms. Falbister for a couple of days to vacation at Canandaigua Lake in the Finger Lakes. There were a few inquiries from Hollywood, but Idaho was not destined to become the next Rin Tin Tin or Lassie. Instead, he would spend the next two years chained up in the Fortune's small yard. While under the supervision of Mrs. George Fortune, that's Victor's mom, he did manage to escape twice. One time, Idaho pushed an unlatched screen door open, and he made a run for it. But when they caught up with him, he was already on his way home. The second time, his chain broke, and Mrs. Fortune did a panic search through the fields for him. But when she failed to locate him, she returned home, only to find Idaho sitting right beside the stake to which the broken chain had been attached. On September 19, 1938, that's just a couple of weeks prior to the end of his sentence, Supreme Court Justice William F. Love signed a court order that permanently freed Idaho. Then, on January 12, Idaho accompanied Jack Fortune, that's Victor's brother, to inspect some muskrat traps. Idaho spotted a cat and he gave chase. He ran out onto the pavement of the million-dollar highway and he was struck by a car. Sadly, Idaho did not survive. He was buried in the family's backyard, not too far from the stake that he'd been chained to for the previous two years. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let me bring you in person, Larry Keating. Ladies... Why are your hands so dry tonight, so rough and scratchy? Because in winter, the dry indoors air and cold, dry outdoors air and wintry winds all combine to rob my skin of its natural moisture every minute of the day. Right. And what is the best thing, do you think, for that? Well, thousands like myself say, Italian balm. This famous lotion puts back moisture into my skin, helps it keep soft and smooth, does it so quickly, too. The minute Italian balm touches my skin, it feels smooth, more velvety. The action is almost immediate. Have you ever found a lotion that equaled Italian balm in caring for the skin in wintertime? The answer that thousands of women would give to that question is, no, I haven't. Because Italian balm will keep hands free of dryness and chapping, no matter what happens in the way of housework or weather. Yes, Italian balm is a sturdy protector against dryness and chapping. It was born and reared in Canada, North America's coldest climate. Its success there brought it to the United States. And since the day it crossed the border, so many women have said... The Italian bomb never fails me. It has a quality and richness that my skin seems to need when winter comes. Italian bomb was once the best-selling hand lotion in the United States. The product's formula had been purchased in 1927 from a Canadian named Dr. Campana, 
who gave it the Italian bomb name. Nobody's exactly sure why, though. A new company, the Campana Company, was established to sell the hand lotion, and for many years it really was their only product. In 1931, the company started a radio show called First Nighter, and that was to help promote the product, which had, at its peak, as many as 10 million listeners. The commercial you just heard was a portion of one of those First Nighter shows and was titled The One in the Middle. It was originally broadcast on January 1st of 1948. Campana's treasurer, I. Willie Crow, wrote more than 100 of the episodes of the radio program during its 20-year run. It probably didn't hurt that he was also the nephew of the company's founder, Ernest Oswald. During World War II, the company had to limit production of Italian bomb due to a shortage of raw materials. In particular, they were unable to obtain glycerin, so they used a sugar-based substitute instead. Sounds kind of sticky, doesn't it? But they were faced with an even bigger problem. That's because Italy was the enemy of the United States during the war, and sales of a product named Italian Bomb were doomed. So they changed the name to Campana Bomb, but the sales never recovered once the war ended. In a last-ditch effort to save the product, the name was changed back to Italian Bomb, but sales kept diminishing. The company was sold to Allied Labs in 1956 and was acquired by Purex in 1962. Purex still owns the trademark for Italian Bomb, even though the product has long disappeared from store shelves. If you get a chance, go online and search for the Campana factory. It's a beautiful Art Deco building and it still stands in Batavia, Illinois, and it has been on the National Register of Historic Places since April 6 of 1979. And now for the question of the day. Most people know that the song Yesterday by the Beatles is the most covered popular song of all time. That is, the song has been recorded by more artists than any other in history. So can you name the second most covered Beatles song? Here are your choices. One, Eleanor Rigby. Two, Here Comes the Sun. Three, Let It Be. Four, Something. Or five, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I'll think about those choices for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer in a few minutes. In other news, since we just heard a story about a dog, how about some others featuring a headless rooster, a monkey, and a herd of sheep? Now, one of my favorite stories of all time is that of Mike the Headless Chicken, which I wrote about in my first book, Einstein's Refrigerator. Well, it turns out that Headless Mike was not alone. A Los Angeles woman named Martha Green purchased a live chicken at a butcher shop on April 2nd of 1949 and requested that it be prepared for dinner. Upon returning home, Mrs. Green dumped the bird into the sink, and to her surprise, the bird just stood up and tried to crow. She initially named the bird Butch, but later changed it to Lazarus. Now, animal lovers were outraged, and the local SPCA, that's the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, they took custody of the bird. Now, after hearing both sides, a justice of the peace ordered the bird returned to Mrs. Green. But there was to be no peace. You see, on Friday, April 22nd, two city animal regulars showed up at Mrs. Green's door with orders to destroy the animal. A small crowd gathered to protest, and then Lazarus suddenly dropped dead. He had lived 19 days and 22 hours without his head. In our next story, a monkey was spotted in a tree behind the Miami Beach, Florida home of Selma and Ben Grinald on December 5th of 1951. 
the police were called and patrolman John Ward was dispatched to the couple's home. Now, there was nothing in Officer Ward's training to prepare him for dealing with having to get a monkey down out of a tree. So he danced around under the tree with, well, you guessed it, a bunch of bananas in his hands in an effort to lure the monkey down. A small crowd began to gather when suddenly their two-year-old son Douglas somehow, no one knows how, he got into a bed of stinging red ants. So dad quickly grabbed Douglas and dunked him into a tub of water to rid him of the ants. And if that wasn't bad enough, during all of that commotion, Mrs. Grinald had forgotten about a pan she had left on the stove. And next thing you know, the family's dealing with a grease fire that scorched their curtains and some of the woodwork. Mr. Grinald was able to put out the fire, but the inhalation of the smoke made him ill. Next, the rags that had been used to clean up the mess created by the fire were placed into the washing machine. But one of their kids opened the machine door while it was running, and that flooded the kitchen with four inches, or about 10 centimeters, of water before anyone noticed. At 1 a.m., that's nine hours after the monkey was first spotted in the tree, the mess was finally cleaned up. As to what happened to the monkey, Mrs. Grinald said, quote, We don't know, and we don't care. And in our last story for today, I'm sure you've heard the common misconception that lemmings commit mass suicide. Well, a similar type of event happened on July 22, 1966, to a flock of sheep in Bourg-Saint-Maurice, France. 42-year-old Simon Balda bedded down his flock of 2,100 sheep that Friday night. With his dogs left in charge to guard the sheep, Simon went to a nearby village to join up with other shepherds. The next day, his entire flock was gone. Half of the sheep were found safe about a half mile or 800 meters away, but the other half was long gone. It was later realized that 1,050 of his sheep had gone the other way and leapt over an alpine cliff to their death. Now, the cause of this death leap could not be determined, but it was assumed that either their dogs or another animal had frightened them. The lost sheep were valued at approximately $42,000, which would be about $316,000 today. So a few minutes ago, I asked you which song in the Beatles catalog was covered by more artists, you know, second to the song yesterday. Here's what some others thought. I'm going to say that it is Here Comes the Sun. While my guitar gently weeps, because it's been covered by other singers. Here Comes the Sun. Let it be. Here comes the sun. Let it be. Four. Something. I think let it be. So I asked this question to a total of 50 people. Three chose Eleanor Rigby. 17 chose Here Comes the Sun. 20 chose Let It Be. Six chose Something. And four chose While My Guitar Gently Weeps. So if you went with the popular vote, they would say Let It Be. But I'll let the late Sonny Bono tell you the answer. You know there's something... There's something about the way, about the way she moves, attracts me like no other lover. There's something about the way she woos me, I won't ever leave her now. You know I believe her now. Somewhere in a smile she knows 
you know I don't need no other lover There's something in the style she shows me I won't ever leave her now You know I believe her now Well, that might be annoying some people. You may be really enjoying it. I don't know. But what I'll do is I'll play the entire song at the end of the podcast. And if you want to listen, you can. If not, just shut it off. Anyway, Something was the only George Harrison Penn song to go to number one on Billboard's charts while the Beatles were still together. It was a double A-sided single. The other side was another classic, Come Together. The line, Something in the Way She Moves, comes from the James Taylor song of the same title. Taylor just happened to be on the contract with the Beatles' Apple Records at the time, but other than that line, Harrison's version differs quite a bit. The song has always been rumored to have been written about Harrison's wife at the time, Patty Boyd, but Harrison at various times said it was about the Hindu deity Krishna, and in others he said it was simply about universal love, whether for a woman or a god. Well, that brings this episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. You can find additional true stories just like the one you heard on my website, that's uselessinformation.org, uselessinformation.org, and the two books written by me, Steve Silverman. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can do so by doing a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast there. And as always, I suggest that you go to iTunes or some other podcast indexing service, and then you can sign up to receive automatic updates when a new episode is released. So let's end with that Sonny and Cher version of something. It's from the 1971 album Sonny and Cher Live, which from what I can tell is out of print. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in the next time. Bye. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know there's something... There's something about the way, about the way she moves, attracts me like no other lover. There's something about the way she woos me, I won't ever leave her now, you know I believe her now. Somewhere in her smile, she knows, she knows, I don't need no other lover.
Just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus, 
tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.